0: Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present *Lachaim*, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Gollub. I'm Mark Gollub. and one of the Unfortunate dynamics that we are experiencing today in the Jewish community is the loss, sadly, of many of those who actually lived through the Shoah, who somehow managed to endure the death camps, Auschwitz-Birkenau, and other forms of Nazi enslavement and beastly brutality who somehow transcended all of the horror and pain and sadism of Hitler's final solution. To survive and to begin anew, rebuilding families, rebuilding lives, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, as well as helping to create the greatest resurrection, perhaps, in all of history, a renewal of the sovereign state of the Jewish people, the sovereign state of Israel. Sadly, many of those heroes of Jewish life and of Jewish history are passing away. Zichronam livracha. May their memories be forever a blessing. However, in the overwhelming number of surviving families, their children, the second generation, are very much with us, very much adding to the vitality and creativity of modern Jewish life. It is often not easy to be the child of survivors, but very often, The children of survivors learn enormous lessons from their parents. Lessons which they become more aware of and appreciative of as they, the children, become older and wiser adults themselves. And we benefit from their wisdom. On this edition of the Chaim, it is my great honor and privilege to have the chance to speak with a child of survivors who's prepared to share with us some of the things she has learned from her late mother and father, Zichronam Livracha. You've met this extraordinary woman before, on Lachayim, Dr. Naomi Vilko, a board certified psychiatrist in private practice in Princeton, New Jersey and a profoundly committed Jew who serves on the boards of CAMRA, the Miriam Institute, Truth About Israel, and JBS. And I'm very proud to say that Naomi Velko is a dear personal friend. Naomi, thank you for joining us again on Lachaim and JBS.
1: Thank you. And... Um I just wanted to, I know you have questions to ask me. Um, I just wanted to say that um, my mom, it's difficult for me to talk about. My mom just passed away a few weeks ago. Um, She was
0: 99, though.
1: during the last three years of her life, she always had JBS on her television in New York. So um, she, she's not the only one, but I'm sure, um, and I'm sure you've heard this from other people before, but um, as her daughter, her only child, I really, um, I'm honored to have been on your board for years. I don't know how many years. And from the also, beginning. Um, pardon me?
0: From the, the beginning. The, um, right. Right.
1: Yes, from the beginning, when it had a different name. I yes. still have those. And um,
0: Shalom TV. It,
1: it made a huge difference for my family.
0: Well, I am very, very gratified and pleased to hear that. I also should tell our audience, by the way, again, Naomi and I have been dear friends. We've traveled to Israel together. She's been at my side with some, when I had some difficult moments. And she has been one who has championed the cause of JBS. Again, when it was first Shalom TV, and we were struggling, we're still struggling, but we were struggling there in a totally different way. We were a struggling little Jewish non-profit channel. First it was VOD, Video on Demand, and then finally it was a linear channel, and then we were on Optimum, Cablevision, Channel 138, where many of you still watch. And we continue to grow and grow and grow. And as Naomi says, there are many, many people who had JBS now as part of their lives and have it on all the time. But what I wanted to say about Naomi was, in addition to all Naomi does for Jewish life, and I mentioned a couple of the boards she's on, but boy, She's been on so many boards and she has devoted her life to the Jewish people and to the state of Israel. But the other thing she has devoted her life to, and in this, the context of this program, Naomi, I want to make sure our audience understands this. Naomi was as devoted a daughter to her mother as I have ever seen, as was her husband, Sidney. And they made sure that she had an apartment in their building, and they took care of her. And for many, many years, when I would visit Naomi, her mother would come over. Uh, We were privileged to actually show her mother. Her mother is Olga Vilko. And Olga was also featured in a program we did at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue for Yom HaShoah, where she spoke, and she was a very, very bright, with it woman. And very often when I was visiting Naomi, she would come in and we would spend time together. And I was always, Naomi, very, very moved by the way you took care of your mother. And I believe it is a model for what Jewish children if not ought to do, should want to do. Not every child can do what you did. And you gave your mother a gift that she died in her own bed, in her own apartment. And she lived, as you said, to 99. So Mazal Tov to her and in many reasons, to many, a great extent. Your mother lived in 99 because she had you and your husband and your children, her grandchildren, and then your grandchildren gave her great-grandchildren. So there were three generations, and they were all supporting, in love, your mother, Olga. So kola to you, and again, I believe it's a model for what we want.
1: Thank you. Yes, we tried our best. And um, I have to say, without my husband's support, um, we couldn't have done it. But I've been a psychiatrist for 45 years. That's when I started my training. And um, I managed her cardiac medications for the last 15. So, yeah, in many ways, um, she lived... Uh, as long a life as anyone with her
0: challenges could live. Longer, I'm sorry uh, she lived longer than most people could you know it's incredible what she survived and then how she built a second life for herself and then as I'm going to ask you to describe she was robbed the second time but um, again I appreciate what you're saying about Sydney and your grandchildren, your children, her grandchildren, and anyway, you did it. So I want to, I want to sort of, before I ask you, what did you learn from your mother and father? I want to, I want you to tell them, tell our audience the story a little bit, and you've done this before. So I'm asking you to sort of condense it in this edition of Lachaim, but. Begin anywhere you want with your parents who ended up in the Shoah in different ways. And then sort of describe how your parents came together and the life they began to build in America.
1: My parents were 12 and a half years apart. Um, My father was older. Uh, but they grew up in the same town, so they knew each other's families, although they may not have ever spoken. And so they met after the war. That's how they referred to it, the right. war.
0: The war. So, oh, uh, and your father's name is William?
1: William. He had many names.
0: What was his Hebrew name?
1: Uh, Shmuel Ben Very nice. And Avraham Lepoed. Okay. And... The Cohen, uh line, Viltovich, was the original name. Um, there are no more men. Uh, anyway, um, so um, uh, they both endured a lot um, during the war. But um, my father uh, had it uh, much worse. Uh, Then my mother, my mother always considered herself lucky because although they were both in a ghetto for six weeks and they were both on cattle cars, I don't think they were in the same transport, but they both arrived to Auschwitz and were selected to live.
0: Your parents were Hungarian Jews, correct?
1: Yes, they were Hungarian Jews who spoke Hungarian at home. But lived in Czechoslovakia, so they went to Czech school and they conducted business in Czech.
0: What was the name so, of their What was the name of their town?
1: Town um, Kiraihasa.
0: Okay. It, and when they, were, uh, when they were when uh, they were transported, transported uh, was it from there?
1: It was from Salish, which is the was the county seat.
0: Okay, keep going.
1: So um, my mother was selected to work in a factory, and people, ordinary people who say they didn't know what was going on, they're lying. Because when my parents were in Auschwitz, the sky was black with American warplanes, which were bombing a factory next door and their aerial photographs of the, the um, prematoria. Uh, but my mother, um, so my mother's um, place of work where she received the same food, which was starvation rations as she had in Auschwitz, but her uh, accommodations were better. Uh, she worked with half the people were slaves and half were, ordinary people in Sudetenland, which was the beginning, you know, the start of the war. Um, So uh, she was not liberated. My father was liberated by the Americans in Dachau. Uh, She, the SS just left and turned off the electricity and water. And naturally it was at the very end because it was in already Germany, Sudetenland. So, um, It was harrowing to get back to your town, but a lot of people tried to get back to see who survived. And um, she had some interesting experiences. Getting back took weeks because everything was bombed. When she came back, her aunt had gotten there sooner. She was liberated sooner than my mom, so um, she had set up kind of like a, and she wrote a book, my mother's aunt actually, about her experiences. She had saved her daughter in concentration camp. So she set up sort of like a inn uh, next to the railroad station and my parents' homes were both occupied and they couldn't get the occupants out. So um, they ended up in the same place, um, and that's how they met.
0: Okay, how old was your mother when she was transported to Auschwitz?
1: Around 22.
0: Okay, and your father was how many years older?
1: Twelve and a half.
0: So So he was in his early 30s. Right. Okay, had your father been married before?
1: Yes, my father's first wife... And son, who was born, I just found out recently, August 2nd, 1935, was murdered with his mother. In the selection, people with children were mostly selected to immediately be killed with their children.
0: So your father lost his wife at the time and his son at the time. Right. Okay. Then your mother and father meet after the, the war... And is it? And the fair? the Russians occupied their and annexed,
1: occupied and annexed their town and all of Transylvania because it had salt and timber. At the end of, I think, 45 already. So my parents and everyone they knew uh, that could travel uh, made their way to Prague. In between, they went to Budapest, where my father's cousin uh, gave them false papers so they could travel more safely to Prague, because they didn't really have ID. And they got to Prague. They got married in March of '46 uh, at the alt Synagogue in Prague. And the question was where to go. My mother wanted to go to Israel. She was fluent in Hebrew. Both my parents had relatives there. Uh, And both my parents had relatives in United States. My father said he couldn't fight anymore. I subsequently found out, I mean, he told me that. I subsequently found out that in addition to slave labor on and off for two years, five concentration camps before that, he was in the Czech army, regular army. So anyway, then, um, getting out at the very last minute, you know, as refugees from Stalin um, in um, 19- March of 1948 and uh, they came to New York, and I was born in '52. so they had been in the United States for four years.
0: Okay. How did your mother know Hebrew? Her father
1: was what she called the only unquestioning Zionist uh, vocal. So you can see I get it, you know, it's generational. Took no prisoners. In his town. Uh, As a rabbi, you'd appreciate this. He was a self-made man. His father had died when he was young. He married a wealthy woman, but nonetheless, he had to support his sisters and brother, get them started. And he was a great expense, but he bought a Torah for their synagogue. And he had a fight with the rabbi and took it home. I don't know for how long, but so um, so he, I think, my mother didn't ask, interestingly, times were different. I believe he wanted to make Aliyah, so he sent her for 10 years at great expense away to school. And the last about six years were the Hebrew gymnasium of Munkach, which was well known in Israel. Most of the graduates that survived the war uh, made Aliyah. So that's how she knew. All right. And she continued to speak and almost, you know, until she died.
0: Yes. All right, you've brought us to the point where they've moved to the United States, and you are born. Where are they living?
1: Uh, they lived in Inwood, which is the northern tip of Manhattan.
0: So you were born. Um, y- you were raised in, in Inwood.
1: Yeah, and I lived there until I got married.
0: Okay, tell us what happened to your father.
1: So um, my father did very well in Prague. He act- my parent. He actually bought an apartment, and um, he. Uh, came to United States, and and they both ended up working in sweatshops. They lived in Brooklyn. I feel that that took a big toll on them in addition to everything else because my mother always told me, don't spend so much money, including on her, uh, because it's easy to go up and very hard to come down. So, um, they, uh, my father was always in some business transaction. So, um, he, uh, they moved to Inwood uh, when they were still working in sweatshops. My mother stopped when I was born, and she worked in a bakery in the evenings, and um, uh, my father owned a grocery store and when he died in his sleep the picture of health he just didn't wake up one morning um uh, the store was luckily sold but he was transitioning into the real estate business and he owned just one building at that point
0: how old were you so my How my mother
1: old- lost a, you know her support
0: yes how old were you when your father died
1: I was just 10 in a month.
0: That's very hard, Naomi.
1: Yeah, it was very hard. I was, you know, supposed to go to camp the next day, uh, to sleepaway camp, a Zionist camp, of course. And um, my mother um, was really lost. Um,
0: For how long was she lost?
1: Well, she didn't let herself stay lost. I mean, we went to visit relatives in Chicago for a few weeks, her aunt, same one, which uh, I was very grateful for. They had children, and it was much better for me. And then um, she got a job as a waitress uh, so that I wouldn't be home alone as much, and she told me at the time um that um she was glad she had to go to work because she couldn't afford to stay in bed but i'll tell you um i you know i didn't think about the holocaust as much as the fact that my father died and the germans killed him too i knew that much because his parents were 20 years older than him when they died. um Uh, and how, how to survive.
0: I understand completely. So I want you to begin anywhere you want to begin. Again, if people are interested in hearing more of your story and questions I asked you about what was it like growing up as a second generation, it can be very hard to be a second generation child and many people who who have sat with me on Lachaim have been honest enough to describe how difficult it's been. I don't know how many people watching right now saw my interview with Henry Winkler, who also grew up in New York, had two Holocaust parents, and his life was miserable. And it's not that he didn't <laughs> love his not that he didn't love his parents, but they were very bruised people who didn't know how to be a father and a mother and that's a, you know on the far other end of the spectrum but i've talked to many second generation children who are somewhere in between but if they want to hear you you discuss what it is like to be a second generation child they should go back find my first discussion with Naomi about her being a second generation. That's not my interest this time. My interest this time is asking you, Naomi, what do you think you as a human being learned from your parents who were survivors of the Holocaust? And you can begin anywhere you want.
1: So I, um interestingly... I found out relatively recently that um, most American Jews were um, devoted to the Democratic Party. Um, That was an alien concept to me. Um, My parents gave me the clear message and the history of Czechoslovakia, 20 year history of the only um, democratic country in Eastern or Central Europe until the disastrous Munich Agreement. Uh, You know, that's my family's history. And it's worth... My parents discussed it with me as a family history and an academic subject, both. So, um, So the thing is that what they learned is even though they lived in a democracy, the Czechs were not anti-Semitic. And my mother said her grandfather told her that they were so lucky, fifty years of Austro-Hungary, 50 years of peace, no pogroms. There was just there was anti-Semitism but it wasn't like what the Russian or Polish people experience. It's all relative, right? But the message that I got was, don't be loyal to anyone because so they're they're, uh, good to Jews today, tomorrow it'll change, and be prepared to leave.
0: Don't that's that. That's, that's the lesson, or that's the mantra that they gave you, and you learned growing up as a first a younger child, and then as a as a young adult. Right. Trust no one, and be ready to leave at any time. Do I have it right? Right. Yes. Okay. Keep going.
1: Not even. No offense, but, you know, one time I told my mother, you know, I'm an American Jew. This was the conversation. She said, not really. This was a conversation both in English and Hungarian. The American Jews are naive. The American Jews are stupid. The American Jews don't know how good they have it. The Americans, she said the same thing about the non-Jews. So, um, basically, it's like, Um, know your history and be prepared. And I only recently realized how difficult it is having purchased an apartment in Israel and thinking about going there for extended periods. How my parents started again so many times. And how difficult it must have been to adjust on top of everything else, my parents came to the United States, not knowing the culture they knew English, but they knew you know Eng- you know the king's english right that 's what people learned in europe they didn't know the slang American slang, and they didn't understand um, the Jewish culture in the United States. So although they knew English, they had to learn much more. Like to read a newspaper is completely different than speaking. And how to do business in America. And, um, you know, in thinking about um, making Aliyah to Israel, it's not only the language, it's like the whole mechanics of the country. Um, so the same thing happened when they went from Kirihauser where they were, had a status, they had money, they had family backing. Uh, they first went to Prague where, you know, they really had to start over there and then they came here and it's really scary.
0: Yes, I understand. Um, And I'm not saying, again, I don't think where you are in life and where you are financially in life is not in any way similar to what happened to them. I understand um, if you make Aliyah, it's going to be a new culture. And as much as you love Israel whenever you're there, until you become an Israeli, it's not the same. I want to come back to something you just said though. In some way you sound critical of American Jews for for not getting it, for not getting it. And I want you to develop that idea for me, from your perspective. What did you learn from your parents about the things you see in American Jewry? And you say to yourself, I wish they had learned from my parents because they just don't get it at all. Can you speak to that at all?
1: Yeah. So um, besides you know loyalty to one political party, um, I, and this is really how I got involved in Jewish life, it was after 9-11, where i was trying to i was volunteering to help um survivors families but um what i i was horrified and really shocked that um the american jews most of them and now there are more surveys about it that look even worse but that most of them Don't consider Israel essential to our survival. Don't love Israel, even if they have no intention of moving there. Don't admire the pioneers that created a a wonderful country against all odds, being constantly invaded, attacked. I mean, they haven't had a minute of peace uh, between terrorism and invading armies being attacked on the world stage. And I just thought, and after the liberation of the Russian Jews, which could have been me, uh, had my parents not had sponsors, um, I just couldn't believe that people uh, felt that um, Israel wasn't good enough, Israel needed to be what they wanted it to be. Um, America should have a voice in Israel's borders. Uh, America should be like the parents of Israel and tell Israel what to do. That people didn't realize how much Israel contributes to our safety uh, through on the ground intelligence and um, tech. I. I I'm still, every time I speak to people um, that are in J Street or worse, I or indifferent, I'm still always surprised.
0: I understand. You know, in America, there's a question that sometimes Jews are asked. And the question is, do you consider yourself first and foremost, an American, or you consider yourself, first and foremost, a Jew? Where is the center of your own personal identity? There are many, many American Jews who answer they feel more American than they do feel Jewish, or uh, they feel that they are an American more than they are a Jew, I personally am always surprised when I hear that. What's your reaction?
1: That's what surprised me when I learned that. But then I realized very young that, you know, most people didn't have my background either, you know, from losing a parent so young or from parents from the Shoah and the uniqueness of parents that grew up in a liberal democracy, that's the Hungarian Jews who you know, have a unique story, which I can get into more, but especially those that lived in in Czechoslovakia, Camelot, basically. So I learned to say, you know you can convert, you can intermarry. You can discard Judaism, the Jewish people, and the land of Israel. But when it comes down to it, they'll find you. And there is no cure for anti-Semitism. And I resented my mother telling me that.
0: You, re- I, you resented it?
1: Yes, because she made it sound like I shouldn't trust anyone. That, um, so I was afraid, you know, because either they die or they're killed, right? Or they'll um, disappoint you. As I got older and as the world changed, I think you could speak to this better than I, but I do think that there was a time at least in the circles I was in, which was American Jewish people that went to conservative synagogues, um, that there was a time where people were more united uh, and uh, Israel was more of the center. Like I remember in Hebrew school, sending letters to Israelis and they always collecting things for Israel. And um, I think it changed. Though so, since Israel looks safer than it had before, I think that um, people felt like Israel's no longer the underdog. You know, we don't have. You know, it's not so essential. But um, I, uh, yeah, my my parents experience also the way they were treated in the United States by some of their relatives so I felt like well how could I expect the American Jews or the American people to be consistent and treat me fairly not asking for special treatment just with respect when my own family treated my parents so poorly and not everyone but in some cases
0: how do you feel american jury has been in taking care of the survivors who ended up living in america terrible in what way
1: um first they were um disrespected um they were you know look the organized american why didn't my parents trust the organized american jewish community because my parents knew because they knew some of the people that broke the codes the german codes they knew that the organized american jewish community knew about the holocaust The the Hungarian Jews were taken to concentration camps as the Germans were in retreat and the Russians were six weeks away from my parents' town. The Americans knew before each transport was taken. And yet, um, no one stood up to Roosevelt, who was a renowned anti-Semite. There's no, you know, uh, evidence to the contrary, and and said, we have to do something. But it really started with the Evian Conference, where um, every country refused to take Jews, and how bad this country was, was that, and people think it's, you know, the Garden of Eden now, which it is, uh, but um in some ways, but uh there were Caribbean islands that wanted to take Jews, and the United States wouldn't let them. The United States did not even take a kinder transport, so I feel that um. That's a sort of unique, and uh, Tommy Lapid spoke about this. He said that what my parents told me, we waited in vain for the free world to save us. We knew they knew. We couldn't imagine. And Ellie Wiesel said, why didn't they tell us? We knew English. Why didn't they drop leaflets? She was from a neighboring town. Why didn't they give us water? Why didn't they say, don't get on the trains? He said, it's they all of them, my parents and these two more famous people said, um, we had no idea what was happening and we thought we'd live it out. We knew we were being enslaved, but we thought you'd reach us in time and you didn't come. So that was the message of Israel. The message is, if someone says they want to wipe you off the map, which practically every surrounding country and now Iran is saying, believe them and don't depend on anyone else to protect you. And Israel does not have to listen to the American Jews about their security needs. So... um, Yeah, so basically, um, I started having these Zionist events um, uh, to educate people about Israel. Because another lesson I learned is they can't take your education away from you. And education about history is essential so it, you, you know history doesn't repeat itself so um, and I was disappointed
0: in what uh, way in what way, I, in, my what my way was right. in, in what way were you disappointed and in what way was your mother right uh,
1: the synagogue I was a member of with my family for 31 years threw me out, literally. Why? Uh, they they had agreed to let me use the synagogue to uh, teach a course, uh, Israel inside out, Israel inside out, which was a 18 week course. Uh, Film-based course by Jerusalem U, and um, I found it accidentally. It's a long story, but anyway, uh, it was written about in the newspaper. It was an interfaith Israel advocacy course. I was doing it with a Presbyterian professor, and I'm a professor of psychiatry. So, uh, even though our uh, you know specialty isn't judaism or the history of israel we felt very competent to do a film-based course so um they said um they got complaints you know after the course was already advertised and everything they got complaints because i was a member of APAC and that was too right-wing so i was i mean i was horrified so I went to a different synagogue, and then n- now I'm at a third synagogue, but it, it was the beginning it was in Princeton, apparently, and Berkeley, like when I was at Columbia. The riots, the demonstrations started there, and uh, it was really a takeover of at least part of the Jewish world by people that had conditional their their support for israel was conditional
0: do you worry at all that what happened in europe in some way and i'm not suggesting a holocaust but that in some way america could become less hospitable to or life would be harder for Jews in America, or do you believe that the American system is such that, while, as you said at the very beginning of the program, there will always be anti-Semitism, you you don't ever erase that. But if anti-Semitism is never institutionalized, it Mm -hmm. never is a threat to American Jews as the institutionalized anti-semitism was throughout Europe and of course in Nazi Germany. Do you ever worry about that kind of anti-semitism, even if it never leads to camps and death, but are you worried that in some way America will become at any point less hospitable to Jews or do you think America is this unique social experiment, which has been fabulous for Jews up till now. It's, that's also what you said to me at the beginning, that your mother wanted you to appreciate what America was for Jews. Do you believe that's the America that will endure?
1: Um... So Czechoslovakia had the same system, actually an American constitution and an American first lady, but small countries surrounded by fascists. So they, in a way, had no chance unless the Allies defended their borders. Their borders were, it's eerily similar to Israel. The Western border was mountainous, was made as a protection against invasion from the Germans. So once the Munich Agreement happened, the West abandoned Czechoslovakia and abandoned the Jews of Europe. The um, difference is that we're a very big country and our neighbors are Canada and South, you know, Central and South America. It's quite a difference with Israel and the former Czechoslovakia. But what I, so I don't honestly expect to go to concentration camp. But what worries me and the difference between the average Jewish American person who grew up um, with parents who were American um, is that I pay more attention to um, what's being said. And the people, the Jews that look Jewish, just like, you know, black people can't hide their skin color, So the Jews that dress as Jew, you know, very traditional Jews, like the Lubavitch or other Hasids, um, are being targeted. Synagogues are being targeted. Um, This has happened before uh, in my lifetime. But it seems to be what worries me is that the Jews that are not Hasidic in general aren't standing up and saying, this is intolerable, we won't take this. And the fact that there are now five Congress people that sub- openly support BDS is very worrisome to me, as is the direction, which has always been the case, The far left and the far right meet an anti-Semitism. So the fringes of both the two-party system, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, are very worrisome to me. And I don't see the American Jewish leadership standing up to this.
0: To the extent to which that is correct, why do you think... American Jewish leadership has not pushed back?
1: Um, I think uh, they want, I think that most people, it's human nature and myself, I did the same thing. And I've been targeted, to be honest, because now you can look up my name and see, you know, uh, what programs I've been in, what I've said, what I've written. Um, I'm actually surprised that more people choose not to see me as a psychiatrist once they look me up on the internet, but some have decided not to see me, but I'm sure, but the, um, I think that um, uh, they're like Rabbi Wise, who happened to be born in Budapest, (laughs) Uh, interestingly. Um, I think a lot of American Jews are more concerned with maintaining their status and maintaining their contacts in the government and in industry than are concerned with what's actually happening. And I don't think they can, I don't know that they actually see what's happening. I also honestly have only been on boards of what I'd call kind of struggling startup Jewish nonprofits. I feel a lot of the Jewish organizations have become bloated with huge payrolls and aren't doing, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. But I do think it comes from below. I think most people um, aren't that concerned. Um, think it'll go away. And the what really irritates me. Is the Republicans only see the Republican Jews only see anti Semitism on the left, and the Democratic Jews only see it on the right? And a lot of what I see written is just not true.
0: For example, so,
1: that Trump is an anti Semite. Um, I don't believe that. Um, even what he said in Charlottesville, the next sentence was, "accept, you know, the white supremacist, and however he put it, anti-Semit." But the left is con- the left is convinced that Trump, in the, even if he's good for Israel which they discount also, Um, is bad for the Jews and has incited riots. And the right wing um, says that the squad and other members of the Democratic Party are also inciting riots and You know, people are being beat up and swastikas. But no one's doing anything about their own group, really.
0: We only have a couple minutes left. I'm interested in knowing what concerns Naomi Vilko the most. What does she wish American Jews understood better? And just take a couple of minutes to speak to that. And that's how we'll wrap up.
1: So I feel that um, we all have to become more educated about our history um, and um, the necessity of sticking together as wandering jews you know at sort of the mercy even though america has been great and shown what jewish people can achieve if given the opportunity i feel um, We, you know, and we should try our best to achieve. I think that we have to be more inclusive and um, nicer to each other. At the same time, I think uh, there's a line. And the line to me is um, hating Israel, um, not valuing anything about being jewish and let's say like george soros giving money to anti-semitic organizations um so i think education is very important i think um uh, being nicer to each other um having you know of course it's hard right now during covid but Having more opportunities to have get-togethers to exchange ideas and um, to be, you know, open to, sp- you know, speaking to people that don't agree with you. But basically, I feel that um, everyone should admire Israeli pe- the Israeli people should. Be loyal to our land. And like you once told me when I asked you, uh, Jewish is a three-legged stool. The land, the religion, and the people. And you can't just be religious without supporting Israel, etc. That's my message. We have so much to be grateful for, really.
0: That's beautifully said. Naomi, you know I love you very much, and I always love it, when I give you an opportunity to share your insight, experience and wisdom with the JBS audience. Thank you for this hour, and thank you for all you've done to build Jewish life as much as you possibly can. Call tovahatlahha you just continue the good fight, Naomi, and you and I will be at each other's side. Thank you, my darling.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, and um, I know that a lot of people have made donations in memory of my mother, and I really appreciate, really, uh, what you've done for elderly, disabled, and um, quarantined people now in the era of COVID is beyond what I can thank you for, so... But
0: thank you. Thank you, darling. Dr. Naomi Vilko, a board-certified psychiatrist in private practice in Princeton, New Jersey. She's a second-generation survivor. And as you can see, she's a profoundly committed Jew with enormous insight, working for the State of Israel and the Jewish people. As always, I invite you to share any thoughts or comments you may have to any of the ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim. Please email me, or you can write me. And remember, L'Chaim is now a podcast, which you can download and listen to anytime, anywhere. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'Chaim, my friends, to life.
1: Time is a presentation of Jewish Education in Media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this
0: program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double high or more. Simply visit the JBS website at
1: JBSTV.org and click on the donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS pledge line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive
0: with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.